the spirit of the of the old Negro leagues has to be kept alive. The Jackie Robinsons and others of that period uh, got their start and came up through the Negro leagues to have something of our own that we could uh, find pride in and use the the excellence associated with good baseball playing as a metaphor for excellence in other areas. Uh, that was good for black America at that time, and it was something that black America then share with white America and make it just American. Those are the words of former Secretary of State Colin Powell from an interview I did with him in his offices 20 years ago. And my name is Byron Motley, and welcome to my podcast, The Negro Baseball Leagues, Chatting with the Legends, 100 Years of Negro League Baseball. With Satchel Page and Josh, double duty and cool pop, but must have been something to see. That's what my daddy told me, yeah. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode number four. The Negro Baseball League's Chatting with the Legends podcast, and I am your host, Byron Motley, coming to you once again from my backyard here in Los Angeles, California. Another beautiful sunny day. The birds are again providing some musical background for us during this, so it's all good. Life is good. So today's podcast features a gentleman by the name of Junius Red Gaten, who was not a, per se, a player in the Negro Leagues, although he spent a little time in the, on the ball fields himself. But he was uh, a man who was involved in the early days and was friends with and worked for the founder and the father of Negro League Baseball, the legendary Hall of Famer now, Mr. Andrew Rube Foster. And check this out. He also ran errands for the notorious gangster Al Capone. Oof. What stories this man had to tell, and what a life he certainly lived. And you will not find a lot on the internet or in books even written about Mr. Gayton. That's the beauty and the joy and the gem of this interview, in that uh, he was a person who was kind of under the radar for many, many years. I discovered him really by the gift of serendipity. I was in Chicago in 2004 doing interviews with other Negro League players, and I also met with a woman by the name of Margaret Taylor Burroughs, who has also since passed on. She was a poet, an artist, and a well-known figure in the Chicago area. And I was introduced to her. Somebody said, you know, you should meet with Margaret because she may have some more leads for you, and she knows a lot of people. So uh, she and I met for a coffee one day. And during the course of our conversation, I mentioned to her, I said, um, you know, I have a particular interest in the involvement of the American Communist Party and how they were really on the front lines of helping to break down the color barrier in Major League Baseball. You know, they had picketed at baseball games throughout the country and uh, various stadiums, and they were a very powerful source in that demand of integrating Major League Baseball along with the black press. So it was an interesting dichotomy of these two organizations kind of playing off each other, feeding off each other, and involving each other. So I mentioned that to her, and she says, well, you know what? There's a gentleman you need to go talk to as soon as possible here in Chicago. And she said, the reason you need to go talk to him like now, like the second, this instant, is because he's 104 years old. Almost fell out of my chair. But she said that he's lucid, he's aware, he's a great speaker. She says, you'll enjoy him. So she gave me his phone number. I called him up, and he says, oh, yeah, come on over. And the next thing I know, I'm at his home with my camera, he and I, and we're 
doing this interview. I was really astounded by the information that he gave me. I had no idea what to expect. I really thought that we would talk mostly about his involvement with the Communist Party and picketing at stadiums and what that was like and, and what it was like to live through the Red Scare period and, and all of that. And first of all, I was astonished at his vibrancy and how he, before I even had the camera rolling, he was going down memory lane about, you know, the baseball games and these players. I, I got to hurry up and get my camera on because you know, I'm starting to miss stuff. Because he's the second I walked into the house, he started talking. And uh, when he mentioned his friendship and how he worked for Andrew Foster and, and gave me such insight as to who Foster was, I thought, wow, this is pure gold right here. What a gift this is. He's probably, at that time in 2004, probably one of the few people on the planet who knew Rube Foster personally, maybe the only person at that time who personally knew, worked for, and was friends with Andrew Rube Foster, the father, the man who founded Nuclear League Baseball. I mean, I get chills now just thinking about it. His recall for details and information at 104 years old is just quite incredible. So it's a thrill for me to share a portion of this interview with you today with Mr. Junius Red Gaten. Junius Gaten and I was born in Macomb City, Mississippi in 1900 straight. Came to Chicago and I was a baby about 1905. Been here ever since. Grew up here. Got grown here, and this was the best place in the United States for us. Can you tell me about your involvement with uh, the Negro Leagues? Well, I started working for Mr. Foster when I was a youngster. You know, clean up the ballpark, walk around, you know, in the stands and everything, sweeping, cleaning up, do whatever comes handy, you know. Then he would let me collect tickets, you know, whatever, 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 whatever he wanted me to do, that's what I did. He's a very nice fella, very, what I mean, he wasn't a highly educated man, but he was strict on what he knew, what to do. he knew what he wanted to do, and uh, that's what he wanted you to do, whatever he asked you to do. He's very nice. His wife was nice, and his son was nice. He had one son, and uh, he and I got along pretty good. We all called him. What do we? What do we call? We had a nickname for him. I'm forgetting now. <laughs> he smoked a pipe all the time. And that's where he gave his signals to the ball players. They can tell when he's smoking his pipe when he waves blow the smoke. <laughs> he's pretty smart dude now. He knew he knew you know he he knew baseball. Cause he was playing it back in the eighteen eighties and nineties. He was a hell of a pitcher. Even up in the nineteen hundreds and the seventeens and eighteens and nineteens. He pitched against the Cubs in 12 and 14. 
Play got his leg broke, pitching, pitching against the Cubs, flying into second base. You know, he could hit too. Pretty good ball player. And uh, then he wanted you to, to be somebody because even in the, with, with the white folks, they thought baseball was some game or something, and they didn't care nothing about the white boys, and they called them riffs, you know, playing baseball, because most of the boys were ignorant. Didn't the educated people wasn't playing baseball. They were working with jobs. So you playing baseball, you wasn't you wasn't counted as much until people caught on, began to love the game. Then uh, we all loved it, and Mr. Foster had the American Giants here, and they had another little team, kind of subject to that big team, called Chicago Giants. And they were handled by a man by the name of Joe Green. But they were all good friends. And uh, he was at the players. He was more semi-pro, the Chicago Giants were. And uh, he probably hadn't quite made it yet. He let him play a little bit, maybe another year with the Chicago Giants. Did it finish and... They didn't finish his course. And you see, in the 1920, after the riot and everything was here, we got things settled, they organized the Negro National League. That was done by C.E.I. Taylor from Indianapolis, Indiana, who owned a ball club called ABC, one hell of a ball club. And uh, he, was, he was getting old, he was older than Mr. a little bit older than Mr. Foster. And all of them brothers, they were tailors. C.I. Taylor, Ben Taylor. See, what the other one? three or four of them anyway, and a bunch of brothers, and all of them could play. And Mr. C.I. Taylor, he didn't like you to get too many balls off the levy camp or something. He wanted them to have a little, you know, kind of little, get some sense about them. He was kind of, kind of he, he had a little dignity about himself and he wanted his ball players to act like they were generals because they wanted the women to come to the game. And so they organized the Negro National League and for a while they traveled like the white folks on the street car with the train, you know, with the cars. They'd have a car parked out there, they're going somewhere, car parked on the other side. When they got ready to go somewhere, the boys get on over there and get their bags and things, get on their car and go ahead. And they've done pretty good. And 
Mr. Foster got to working with our Negro colleges in Texas, and he would get a lot of the ball players over the out of schools from Marshall, Texas, and other schools down there in Texas, and where we could find them. And he always had enough players. And he would give some of the other teams, if he had two in the players, he'd give some of the other teams players like Memphis Red Sox, Birmingham Black Barons, any of them. And they were done pretty good until the Depression came and uh, Negroes didn't have no jobs or nothing. But we still made it some kind of way. And uh, he took some of the older players off of the ABCs, all of them who didn't go into the Army and join the 24th or 25th Infantry down in the Philippines where they were stationed. And they, were, they formed a one real good team. In 1917, the Sox beat the New York Giants in the World Series, the White Sox did, and they went down to the Philippines, and they were going to play them, went on down and played with Negroes. So they said, oh, we can push them over there, because these niggas can't play no ball. <laughs> and uh, them Negroes... Surprise, them fellas. I told you about Bully Joe Rogan and uh, Harry Johnson, the big fat dude. He was a catcher. Mac now from the ABC, he was a pitcher and an outfielder. Uh, the other boy, what was his name? He played center field. And he could pitch too. But anyway, after they came back, they got to organize, in Kansas City, they organized what is known the All Nation team. I guess you heard of that. And uh, you had all them tough players on there, Dobie Moore, the Hawkins. Harry Johnson, Goody Joe Rogan, Newt Allen, Duncan is the catcher. Oh, quite a few. And, uh, William Bell, Clifford Bell, two, two pitchers, and Dean, another pitcher. They had quite a, quite a good team. Then later on, after the league got organized, Kansas City got their team organized and changed it from the All Nation to the Kansas City Monarchs. And they were owned by the white folks, the white men who owned the Kansas City white team. And they've done a little better because they played them white boys once in a while, made a little money, and, they, and the boys said they ain't better. And uh, they were they were they were dis dis disciplined better, 
some pretty good ball players. Then they got the teams out east, like the Fitzpatrick Crawfords. Well, it wasn't called the Crawfords, what was it called? The Homestead Grays. That was their own name. They had a good team, real good team. The New York Jets, black New York Jets, had a good team. They changed the name, that name to the Lincoln Jets. They didn't last as long as the Kansas City Monarchs and American Jets did. I don't know why, but they didn't. People didn't take to them like they did. The, these country people love baseball, and they learn how to play it, and they got so they can chuck it. The boys say, and we played. We had more people come out to our ball game out at 39th and went away. Then it didn't go into the white ballpark during the days of the pressure. White boys wasn't playing good ball. They wasn't drawing no crowds. So most of the team, the white folks and Negroes, come on to the Negro ball see a pretty good ball game. And so Mr. Foster, they organized what is known as the World Series in Philadelphia Hilldales and a couple more teams over there. I forget what the name all of them. But uh, they played the Monarchs in the World Series twice. I think they beat them one time. Then the Monarchs beat them. And the last time the American Giants won the World Series and went over there and beat them. But uh, things folded up when they put the Negroes in the major leagues and uh, they didn't want to give them nothing but later on they gave a few of them that was left like double duty and some of them a little pension money two or three of them got pension money from the big leagues because they were had been ball players and a lot of older white players knew them and had played with him and against him. And knew they were pretty good ball players. And this is the way it went until it just dwindled down. So what do you think so far? How's all this for a history lesson? But wait, there's more. Well, we had some good ball teams. Negroes didn't play ball because they were making money. They played the ball, ball game because they loved to play it. And Mr. Foster taught them all the tricks of the game. We had a little Negro named Tommy Williams from Nashville, Tennessee. He didn't have anything on the, on the ball with his hands. But he was a trickster. When the white boys, the big major league team, would come in, bomb storm with our boys, as they call it. They would, uh, Babe Ruth, all them other big, big heavy hitters, yeah. 
come with him. Walk all the heavy hitters. Put them on the bags and catch them with them. We take one foot off the bag, he got them out. Throw the ball over it. Like that. <laughs> Never look back. And now they judged Landis. Told they got to stop playing him. Negro, Negro making the regular food out of y'all. So you see, we didn't know how to play what they call inside baseball. And the white boys learned that and cooperated in the league, but they didn't want to. They, 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 they wasn't bad about denying it that the regular white people were. Called the the sport people a little different from uh, the rest of these folks, and that's the way they had to. We had a team, we had a good baseball team in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Montgomery Gray Sox. They was one hell of a ball club. Then they had the Black Barons. They they played all the Southern. I didn't when they were down there too much, but they played the Southern leagues and things. And whoever had a good ball club down there. Then we had some pretty good. Nashville had a good team. Memphis had a good team. Kansas City and St. Louis had two teams, two good teams. St. Louis Stars were owned by two brothers. I forget their last name until some of somebody else bought them. But uh, this is the way we had to make it. And we made it. Board board to play. We boys we learned everything the hard way and it was easier for us because we were used to doing everything. And now here's a little bit more of Mr. Gayton's recollections about Rube Foster and beyond. Well, he was a big, big, big dark brown skin fella from Texas. And he was a very nice fella. He wasn't hateful or low down. But uh, he would go down south, get the ball player, and he'd pick him out. If he was a fast man, a good runner, he said, I know you can't hit, but you put on some football pads. I want you to steal, learn how to steal races. That's what he's doing until you learn how to hit. So you can't hit, you can get hit. And them boys are doing all that kind of stuff. <laughs> There's more way to choke a cat besides choking them on butter. And Mr. Foster was a very, you would thought he went to school somewhere, but he didn't. But he was a highly intelligent man for his day. Very soft-spoken. He didn't use no bad language and all that stuff. But uh, we called him Jock. I think it was Jock. Nicknamed him Jock. He's a big man, you know, great big man. And he got stout as he grew older. 
But see, after Mr. Foster died in 26, he lost his mind out there in the ballpark. And uh, the boys, one of his second base was Malasha. Dave Malasha took over the managing team from then on. He was from New Orleans and he had been to school. So he was kind of classy fellow, very nice fan. And he managed the team. And uh, they went to do it because somebody else bought the team. So white fellas come in and bought the team. And they kept it for a while. And it ran pretty good. And they done, they done pretty good. But uh, it never was like it was before because the white man in Kansas City owned the Kansas City Monarchs too. See, he owned the American League team. He also owned the Negro team. And these boys over here and elsewhere were jealous of the Monarchs because they said they got along better because they ate better, they slept better and everything else. Because they travel by train coach all the time. They had a good team. Yes, sir, they had a good ball club. And we enjoyed our ball clubs. And we had a lot of semi, we had some semi-pro teams, yeah. Let's see, down at 33rd Street. 33rd Wetway. Down by the playground down there. We had a good ball club down there. And they, they, some of them later on went with the big clubs. But we done pretty good until they got Jackie Robinson in. Then that dwindled everything. And that took the base, baseball away from the white, away from the Negroes altogether. And so we were depending on what they had done. And they took some of them, the good players in. They took in New Dallin and uh, Double Duty. Several of them our players. Jackie Robertson. Jackie got in, he broke it, he opened the door. And Larry Doby. They opened the door, or Larry Doby for the American League, Jackie for the National League. They were very exciting players. Doby could hit the even knock the hell out of that ball. He was a center fielder, good center fielder too. Good outfielder. And Jackie was a hell of a shortstop. He also could play second base. He played either one of them. But uh, his biggest, longest suit was stealing the base. <laughs> and uh, we had several players with the Cubs team. The Cubs, they told the umpire, said, make that nigga stand still. <laughs> I kind of keep running up, running back. <laughs> you know, they drove them boys crazy. And uh, they didn't want to play with the Cubs no more. They didn't want to play with no Negroes no more. So the Dodgers bought them two fellas. And so the man called him, look at now, what you rather do? You rather play with these niggas and make $20,000 a year? Or stay over there, go back to Alabama and see cotton. 
What'd you rather do? But they didn't last too long. Well, they wasn't the best of ball players, but they could play a little bit. But the Negroes, who were star players, showed, showed them how to play ball. Told them how inside baseball was. I had another question for you about uh, what you mentioned about uh, Rube Foster earlier. You said he taught his ball players all the tricks of the game. Yes, sir. Can you explain that? Yeah. You know, like stepping off a of first base and you catch him off a of first base, you, if you're second, you're the pitcher, you're the pitcher not throw that ball to first base and get him. He's off the bat. And he would always, he taught you how to bunt the ball. You didn't have to get a great big base hit, you know. And more ways to choke a cat, cat beside choking him on butter. So you could, you could put a fast man to bat and a fast man behind him. So he bunt that ball and he carried with him all the way to almost where. Man, people can't pick it up because they'd be in, in a band with him, you know what I mean? <laughs> so by the time you get the ball, the guy saved at first base. Another man went him in second. And he'll still say, he taught all kinds of tricks. He knew how to pitch. He knew where to pitch inside and out, low and up and down and over and around. He could shave you. With that baseball. He teach you how to throw that ball close to him, don't hit him. Just throw that ball close to him, shave him. Make you think you're trying to shave him. <laughs> now, they knock your brains out with it if you don't get out of the way. Because some guys, now they want to stay and they get hit. With some, of them, some of them can know how to do it now. Yeah, some of them know how to do them tricks. They still playing some of the old tricks. They get hit two or three times a game. I mean, in the in, in, in season. So they value it to the club. Whether he get a hit or not. He might get to move that man on down to second base. Or somebody get him in. They don't even see back in them days, you didn't even want to do runs. You didn't even know... 15 runs to win no ball game. You keep your other guys, you you got to put your best pitch in there. Then you got a relief pitcher, put him in there. Because our players back in those days, you only had 15 or 16 players on the ball club. And they had to learn how to play everywhere. So you pick out see who can pitch, who got some stuff on his, in his arm, curve that ball, and throw it. So, and this is the way we progressed, all the way up. We practiced during training season, done with the days you had out, you'd be at the ballpark. Learn how to throw them curves or them crooked balls or whatever you've done. Learn how to throw them. Battle, he'd be out there trying to learn how to hit them, too. 
school. That's the way you had to learn. And some of these boys who played in the minor leagues down in the islands where they play ball all the time, them boys, them boys got them tricks down pat. And they can play them. They can bunt and run. Our roof also had a working agreement with the post office, postmaster here. And all the boys who wanted to work, take care of their family, they get a job in the post office in the off season, as they call it. And they work and stay there. So when they retired from baseball, they went right back there. And got the job and they stayed the post office they retired. That was one good thing the post office was good for. So Ruth Foster was a pretty good businessman too. Oh yeah, good businessman. Very good businessman. No doubt that some of my Negro League historian colleagues are going to find some deep intrigue into these stories that we're learning from Mr. Gayton. Not only about Rube Foster, but about even more about the style of Negro League play. These are stories we've heard about and read about for years, but to hear this firsthand knowledge from someone who was actually there at the beginning of the Negro Baseball Leagues is really quite remarkable. And you can tell the man knows exactly what he's talking about. I, for one, I love it. I was really intrigued by the story of pitcher Tommy Williams. I had never heard that story before, how he could just pick runners off the bases without them looking over at the bases. Incredible. So I asked Mr. Gayton to elaborate more on that story, and the conversation went from baseball to moonshine. Tommy Williams, he had one good curveball, and then after, you know, he teased you with that throwing the guys out and you the boy said oh, you better stay on the, keep your foot on the back don't get off cause you step off you're out he ain't gonna look over that you think he look <laughs> throw the ball around throw the ball to second base same way six to Tommy Williams and you actually saw him pitch huh oh yeah he, 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 he was right along with me he was a little older than me. He wasn't too much older than me. His uh, wife was a good seamstress, and she used to do a lot of sewing for my wife. And Tommy was a regular nice fellow, you know, back in the moonshine days, you know. Your boys loved moonshine, you know, back in them days. So. So what, what was moonshine? Describe it. Whiskey. Whiskey. They call it whiskey. They homemade whiskey. <laughs> Illegal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Homemade. Okay. You make it at home. Make it. Make it on the stove anywhere. Was it pretty good? Yeah, it's pretty good. Learn how to make it. All our folks learn how to make it. People in Mississippi and anywhere down south, all the south was just about it was dry back in the back in the early days. So you, didn't, you had to get your whiskey from New Orleans or somewhere else. Order and get it. Buy some fish. What we, my dad used to do, he'd order a big barrel of fish so they cut it in half. Put a gallon of I.W. Harbor in the air 
and the guy in the gin in here. That's where we get his real good whiskey. We had a good time, Saturday night scuffles and all that kind of stuff. I played the piano for the girls. Doing pretty good, that. And the crooks always got away. No matter how good you get things going, they'll find a way to get right in your nest egg if you don't watch them. Yes, sir. Mmm, yes, sir. (laughs) Well, if you think the story of Tommy Williams is great, wait till you hear about Steel Arm Dickie. Tell us about him, Mr. Gaten. And this is the way our baseball went. And we had all kinds of southern teams down south. Of course, you know the white folks owned them, like the Barons. The Gray Sox had one hell of a team, one coming the Gray Sox. Had a pitcher called Steve Arm Dickey, and he was, ex, what do you call it, expedict, what do you call him, when you throw it with both hands? Expedict, yeah, whatever it is. Anyway, he'd throw with his left hand or right hand. Oh no, you can't, you can't do that. You gotta, you gotta finish whatever you're done with that right hand. Uh, then go to the left hand, all right. Yes, but we taught these folks how to play baseball and make it nice and fun. Now it done got so technical, people don't want, hardly want to go. Take all the evening to play a ball game. We used to play a ball game an hour and a half, no more than two hours. Now they go out there at one o'clock, and it's five o'clock when you when you when you leave the ballpark. You know they got television. You got to do all this. You got to do all that to make a show out of it. And it got to. It's like everything else. They done took all the starch out of it that used to be in it. And uh, whatever we were doing to make it nice, make the people enjoy it, they're taking that away and put all this new stuff in. And uh, it just hurt the game. From a visionary ex-pitcher who became a legend in the lore of Negro League history, Andrew Rube Foster, to a pitcher who could pick you off without even looking over at you, to another pitcher who was ambidextrous, strike you out right-handed, and then throw left-handed and do the same. Those are some of the stories and the personalities of the Negro Baseball Leagues. A league like none other. And incidentally, there's another player... Willie Young, who was a one-armed pitcher who pitched in the Negro Leagues. We'll get to him in a future broadcast as well. So that's this episode of the Negro Baseball League's Chatting with the Legends. I certainly hope you have enjoyed some of the time I spent with Mr. Gayton and look forward to seeing you at the next podcast broadcast. And I wonder who's on deck. Well, tune in to find out. And until then, be safe, be well, stay home, and play ball!